This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Money and Markets podcast. This week, it's pretty much all about Omicron, the COVID variant, which has put quite a fear up global markets. Dan Coates was here. Well, dubbed Red Friday after the colour on share price screens around the world, fears over a new strain and what it might mean for economies sparked a massive sell-off in stock markets and the aftershocks have kept on coming. We've got Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine joining us to dissect which industries fared the worst. Yeah, thanks, Danny. So unsurprisingly, airlines and travel companies were among the biggest fallers. um, And there's been significant volatility in the oil price too, as investors weigh up how demand might be affected over the next few months. Now, we'll also take a look at what's going on with vaccine makers. So I'll be digging into all the drama around BT. Is it in the middle of a takeover battle or is this all just hot air? Plus, we've got some big news from big tech. Twitter has a new boss and Facebook's parent company, Meta, has been ordered to sell off the newly acquired Giphy by the UK's competitions regulator, despite the fact that both companies are headquartered in the US. Now, on the subject of regulators, we'll discuss an investigation by the US watchdog, the Federal Trade Commission, into supply bottlenecks which have raised prices for consumers. And on the subject of inflation, how to beat it, I've been chatting to James Harries, who manages the Troy Global Income Fund, about what's going on with dividends and whether cash is starting to look more attractive to income investors. So a pretty packed pod, Dan. Let's go back. Let's start on Friday when headlines like worst ever variant dropped like, well, a really heavy stone into the markets pool and the waves were pretty massive. Yeah, we saw sort of 3% plus movements. Um, Just to put that into context, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, a movement of 1% or more was was considered really bad day on the market. So we got uh, 3% movement is, um, you know, really bad. And people sort of sat up and took notice. And we saw the big fallers were fundamentally companies that are linked to the economy and also stuff like mobility. So on the economy, things like commodity producers, um, companies in the financial services sector, and mobility, it's all about um, travel companies. And we'll come into those sort of sectors in a second. But really, what, what was happening is that I think investors were just sort of quite calm going into the end of the year. They're sort of looking at what might happen in 2022. Yeah, we, we sort of we knew eventually there might be more variants of um, COVID-19. But I don't think anyone would suddenly was expecting this one to come along. It was you know, spreading rapidly. And like you say, Danny, you know, worst ever variant sort of headlines doesn't do anything good for market sentiment. So, you know, one minute we were talking about, you know, perhaps when are interest rates going to go up now? You know, the, the sort of suggestions, actually, interest rates might be kicked down the road. But we'll, we'll come on to that again later on in this podcast. Yeah, it sort of turned things on its head, didn't it? Because we had Europe very much looking at a rise in cases, but it was very much business as usual in the UK and the US. We were talking all about Christmas and then wham. Uh, as I say, Tom Sieber from Shares Magazines with us for the whole of today's podcast. Tom, I think you were pretty much glued to the screens as all these events were unfolding on Friday. Which sectors were the worst hit? Yeah, so in a way, the the sectors that were worst hit were quite predictable, and they they kind of matched what had happened, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic. And when we've had other variants like Delta, I think you know it wasn't quite you know on this scale, but there there obviously was a reaction to the Delta variant as well, and the impact that might have in terms of 
um, you know, restrictions. So travel clearly was was the worst hit. British Airways' own IAG was down as much as 20% at one point on the day, which for, a you know, obviously it's a diminished company, but it's still a large FTSE 100 company. So that is that is a huge move. Um, and they're, they're right at the sharp end of it because obviously they're immediately affected by, you know, the introduction of travel restrictions potentially. But also it, you're going to see people, but you know, the, reacting to it by cancelling bookings or not booking holidays that they might otherwise have booked. So, so they were very much at the sharp end. Um, hospitality sector, you know, fear fears that restrictions might have to be brought in to contain um, this variant. They they suffered too, um, and you know, the oil and gas um, sector was hard hit. Um, you saw oil prices fall because clearly you know there are implications for demand if if there are going to be renewed restrictions particularly travel restrictions um would affect demand for for jet fuel um another sector that that was quite badly affected and this comes back to the point on interest rates that dan hinted at earlier was the banks because one of the sort of takeaways that the market had was that you know expectations for interest rates have been pushed way back on the basis that central banks won't want to do anything too hasty when you know they don't know exactly how this variant is going to play out so so that's bad news for the banks because they were all looking forward to rates going up and, and potentially boosting their profitability um so there was an awful lot for investors to think about wasn't there there was absolutely and i think there was a, an element of kind of shoot first and ask questions later that you know the the, the market reacted very very rapidly you know it clearly as you say sort of some of the headlines sort of created panic there have been some signs as well that some of the the stocks that did well you know in the early stage of the pandemic are kind of returning to form so among the stocks um that were kind of in positive territory on the day and there weren't many um <clears throat> was Ocado, which obviously could benefit if people were uh, kind of um upping well, or, or kind of returning to online groceries. And in, you know, beyond the UK, stocks like Zoom, Netflix, Peloton, they, they've had some gains, although it's probably too early to say whether that's a kind of a, a firm trend at this point. Um, and, you know, the vaccine makers, particularly the ones that um, use the so-called mRNA um, technology, were also in demand because, well, partly they, they've not been doing particularly well, but also because you know, they might need be required to sort of tweak their vaccines in order to to deal with Omicron. So um they they did well. And and finally there were some sort of smaller um diagnostic plays. So companies which which have been involved in testing for COVID, they really bounced back because they've obviously suffered as, you know, we kind of have a return to relative normality and, and an expectation that their their business will obviously sort of um go down um, as a result of that. So they 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 bounced back strongly. Um so yeah, so it, it it was you know um, like I said, fairly predictable. Um, but some of the the sort of the size of some of the moves was clearly you know it was, it was very sort of dramatic on the day. Dan, what was interesting is that in the US markets had a half day. Um, so I want to fall now towards Monday, and markets have been incredibly volatile in the last few days. Why? Well, Monday started off uh, quite well. I, I, we saw saw markets starting to bounce, and I think people 
first of all, they had they had the weekend to sort of trying to get their head around all this. You know that that was everything that was in the news was all around this new variant. Um, and I think what surprised people was that governments were quick to act. You know, we had you know in the UK we had this decision to um, to introduce. So new travel restrictions, get people wearing masks in shops, on trains again. Um, you know, before this would have taken, you know, days, weeks to to sort out. Um, and I just think that, you know, markets hate uncertainty. And so now that, that they see that governments are acting quick, thinking, OK, maybe it was just, you know, things have gone too far. We often see markets overreact when there's bad news. Um, but obviously come Tuesday, <laughs> things happened, you know, changed again and markets started to fall and, and thinking, okay, what is the cause of this? You know, one minute up, one minute down. Um, and and it, you know, initially the markets falling on Tuesday was down to a comment from the boss of the drugs firm Moderna. So Stefan Bansell said that he thought that existing COVID vaccines would actually struggle um, to be effective against the new variants. And of course, that led lots of people to, to panic again. And we saw another sell-off in, in share prices and that the oil price started to fall. And if you looked at the sort of the biggest contributor to um, the FTSE 100's near 1% decline in points terms, it was actually um, another vaccine company, so AstraZeneca. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think that investors just looking at it and thinking, well, um, if Moderna's boss is saying that existing products like the ones from AstraZeneca on the market aren't going to be as effective, um, is that going to impact its earnings forecast? Because recently AstraZeneca started talking about um, making money out of its vaccine. Initially, it wasn't setting out to do that. Um, you know, But actually, if you look at Moderna's share price, that's up 27% in five days. I think what investors like there was a very clear plan on how to deal with this variant. So Moderna said amongst the things it's going to do is to rapidly um, you know, develop a rapidly um, advanced uh, this Omicron-specific booster candidate. So I think markets are just looking at thinking, okay, good, pharmaceuticals companies, you know, they, they've done so much research into this already. Um, they can sort of perhaps just tweak the formula and let's see if they can get some some quick results. So. I mean, is it fair to say as well that we're in for a few weeks of potential volatility, maybe not on the same scale, but because we won't know for a number of weeks just how serious Omicron is, the market is going to have to try and guess. And there's going to be, you know, kind of hints here and there about, you know, what what the impact might be. And I think, you know, that for that reason, we, we're likely to see volatility for a while. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, the market is hanging on the every word of um experts whether it's someone that's um in the scientific community or actually they, they're looking for what's going to happen with financial policy and you know you know actually interesting on on tuesday um as the day progressed we had some more um wild movements um you, you know perhaps tom you, you know did you did you see what the what the fed chair jay powell was saying and, and why he managed to spook investors again yeah so i mean it's sort of it people were employing the taper tantrum term again you know the people with long memories might remember 2013 when um the then fed chair ben bernanke sort of spooked everybody by kind of essentially revealing he was going to take you know the us economy off life support and it wasn't on that scale necessarily but i think what surprised people is that he that his message was very much focused on the fact that they will go ahead with tapering pretty much as planned despite omicron they're not and that that suggests that he's sufficiently worried about inflation um, to do so. And and a key takeaway is that he no longer thinks, or you know, 
the Federal Reserve no longer thinks that inflation is transitory. They, they've given up on that idea. And I mean, that in one sense isn't a surprise because I think a lot of people outside of central banks have, have come to that conclusion themselves anyway. But it is still significant that that he's done so. Um, and Omicron could make it worse as well. I mean, that was a really interesting thing that he said. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Danny. So I think because people might, you know, switch as they did sort of in the early stages of the pandemic to buying goods rather than services, um, you know, that could obviously push up the price of those goods. And, and we've, you know, we've we've spoken before, you know, I'm sure on the podcast and, and everybody knows that we've got serious issues in terms of supply chains and stuff. So I think and he, and he you know, I mean, I guess if you were being more positive, he he was quite sort of bullish in a way on the economy you know despite omicron so that that i mean if you're looking for a sort of silver lining perhaps that was it that he he feels sufficiently confident in the u.s economy that he feels you know they can go ahead with tapering they don't need to to put things on hold just because of the emergence of this new variant and tom you mentioned that the banks were down on friday um there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not Omicron will mean that the Bank of England will decide not to put up rates in December because, once again, all indications suggested that we were going to see a rate rise and now maybe they'll hold off, just see exactly how this impacts the economy and and whether or not we see more restrictions come in. Yeah, I mean, the market is certainly pricing in that, that they they won't... um increase rates sort of I think it's the 15th of December the next year to me I mean you know that is quite a big turnaround if you think that for a long time the market was pricing in that there would be a rate rise in early November and then there was all the discussion of of how you know the new Bank of England governor is an unreliable boyfriend so I mean I don't know if he's going to get any more reliable in the near future because they, they do need to they probably do need to sort of wait and see what what happens with with Omicron before they make any moves and um you know, I mean, they could surprise us, but I, it does seem likely that they, they'll kind of hold fire um, in the current circumstances. So, Dan, we've got Omicron, we've got vaccines, we've got inflation, we've got potential interest rates. Will they rise? Won't they? And amongst all of this, we've also got oil price vacillations that has been pretty volatile. Well, yeah, I mean, at the start of November, Brent crude oil was trading just below $85 a barrel. So it's now at $72 a barrel. So that's about a 15% drop in a month, which is, um, you know, it's very extreme movement. I think this all linked to the market's view of global economic strength. I just think that the variant threatens to destabilize global economic progression. So, you know, if we have reduced economic activity, that would apply a reduced uh, you know, level of oil consumption. So um, the markets seem to be taking the view that we're going to have this you know, big drop in activity. But actually, if you look at some of the analyst forecasts for the next year or two years out, um, you know, you're hearing stories of $100, $150 a barrel, all because of supply constraints. So, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult one to call that, actually. You know, oil at the moment, you know, the big drop, is actually quite good for, you know, eases some of these inflationary pressures. And I think that's what everyone wants to see. But, you know, this could be sort of you know, a, a quiet moment before the next big leg up to, to even higher prices than we've been used to recently. 
And higher prices certainly is something that uh, the consumers really being concerned about. And we had uh, the latest lot of consumer confidence figures from uh, Europe out, which suggested that it fallen to the lowest in seven months. And of course, that's before details of the new variant was released, something we've also seen in the United States. The last lot of figures suggested confidence was at the lowest level in decades as people really tried to deal with rising prices. And you know, how Omicron is going to play in to all of this really needs to be paid attention to because when you think about, you were talking about the hospitality sector as being particularly badly hit earlier, Tom. Well, also, we've got um, the retail sector as well, absolutely desperate to make this Christmas really work for them. And, and there's a massive campaign at the moment in the UK. I don't know if you've seen it, trying to get people back into stores celebrating Christmas, not Clickmas. But now, of course, we've got mask wearing again. And there are a lot of retailers a bit worried that that might put some people off. And we've also had comments from the boss of Iceland, Richard Walker, who's worried about how that's also going to impact staff and staff security if they have to tackle people about it. And there's also been some mixed messages as well. I mean, Dan, you were talking earlier about the fact that uh, certainly government, the UK government acted very quickly but you've got a lot of mixed messages coming out at the moment. So we had the UK Health Security Agency head, Dr. Jenny Harries, suggesting that people shouldn't socialise when they don't particularly need to. Today, we've had the Health Secretary, Sajid Javed, said that the right thing to do was follow existing guidance, get boosters when you can, but not to cancel plans. And there's going to be a lot of businesses really concerned right now that the changes will stop people heading out as much. And, and I took a, a look at um, some figures since um, close of play on Thursday. And, and as you might expect, retailers' hospitality have taken a big hit and they haven't recovered, not as big as travel, but it's it clear that uh, investors do seem to be recalibrating. Uh, it is a it's a difficult one. You know, I certainly, since the rules have changed, I was on a train yesterday and, um, you know, there are people wearing masks, um, you know. So, I, I was, I was, got, I was expecting to see not not many people and everyone ignoring the rules, but everyone seems to sort of, um, on the whole, be following it. So, I, you know, I think we've all, you know, we've had to experience this before. There will be that initial shock. People, so a lot of people are thinking, okay, maybe I just don't want to go to the shops. But um, it's not like an experience that's new to them. No, and speaking as a sort of Glasgow correspondent. It- clearly we've had the mask wearing sort of hasn't gone away up here and it yeah. i don't know how much difference it's made it'd be interesting to sort of see but um certainly i mean in terms of kind of perhaps putting people off from going to shops i don't think it has certainly you know glasgow feels pretty busy now in the sort of run-up to christmas so I think it's the fact that in in England we'd stop wearing them and people were quite bullish about wearing masks and and not wanting to. And I have to say that I kept wearing a mask and got to a point where people would look at you funny in a shop. So in some ways, I think it may well put some people off, certainly make them think a little bit about what they're doing. And also, there's a bit of confusion. I was talking to a guy in our local co-op yesterday who was saying that um, he's a builder, he works with a load of builders, and they'd gone into a cafe, which is hospitality, where you don't need to wear masks at the moment, and they'd been turned away because they didn't have masks with them. So I think the sort of 
one rule for one sector and one rule for another might become quite confusing and we might see some changes on that. So amid all of this, obviously there's plenty of other news to keep investors on their toes. And um, of particular note this week, actually, was um, a jump in the share price of BT. Uh, you know, its shares jumped as much as 10% on an article that was in India's Economic Times, suggesting that Reliance Industries wanted to make a bid or, or potentially just gain a controlling stake in the business. Now, um, you know, the, the shares ease back quite quickly because uh, Reliance came out with a statement denying it was interested. But what's actually quite interesting is that this speculation sort of popped up just a days after Telecom Italia received a private equity takeover bid. And, you know, the chatter now is that the very un what what was the very unloved telecom sector could finally see some proper MA action. So with BT, we in the summer we saw Altis uh, take a 12% stake in the UK telecoms business. Um, and at the time, it said it wouldn't make a takeover bid for six months. Now, that restriction ends on the 10th of December. So there's lots of chatter now that a full bid could come either side of Christmas for BT. Uh, you know, And you know, it's not just BT. Vodafone has also been talked of um, potential takeover target. And you know, actually, in the US, shares in AT&T have just hit a 12-year low um, so you know, there is value to be found in this sector. These telecoms companies generate lots of cash. So that's certainly going to be attractive to someone. It's 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 just about taking a view on um, the pace of sort of growth because it's been incredibly pedestrian for for quite a while. But um, certainly, you know, BT at the start of the year, no one was interested at all. But now it's, it's at the sort of the top of the list of being you know a prime takeover target. And you were talking about speculation. Well, speculation was certainly very much in evidence on Monday. There's been some big news from big tech and it was kind of being discussed um, among clearly investors because the Twitter share price just suddenly jumped up. And you've got to remember, of course, that Twitter stock has been struggling lately. It shed more than 45% since its February high. And the talk was there was going to be a new boss at the top. And when you're talking about Twitter, the first thing you do is you go on Twitter and have a look. And Jack Dorsey, the last thing he said was, I love Twitter. So that was his last tweet before the news came out that uh, he was leaving the job. Um, he's coming for a lot of stick Um because he split his time between two businesses and there were plenty of investors who wondered whether it would have been better served by a single master. Last year, I know Elliot Management, of course, a large Twitter investor, tried to make him choose between the two. And the suggestion is because they've appointed from within that Twitter had very much taken note of that and Jack Dorsey had started making movements. So so what we've got is we've got the technology head, uh, Parag Agarwal, who is, I think, quite a smart choice for the business, certainly knows the ropes. He's been there for a long time. And uh, Jack Dorsey even said, look, he's been, beh been behind every critical decision that helped turn the company around. But the initial bump didn't last too long. And I think a lot of investors were kind of hoping a, a new broom, a real shake-up, a way to really get to grips with generating a lot more revenue from its large and engaged user base. Because when you compare Twitter to Google and Facebook, it, it is a relative minnow. And, you know, 
he's got big shoes to fill, I think, and he really needs to walk with purpose. And I think one of the things that he is going to have to tackle quite quickly is the thorny issue like uh, hate speech. And I think investors are going to be really keeping an eye on that. And uh, I think when anticipation met reality, we did see those early gains collapse and, and not really recovered since then. So uh, I think there's going to be close attention to see exactly how he handles that top job. Dorsey has said he's going to hang around for a while to sort of help the transition through, but he doesn't want to crowd him. And I think the worst thing that you can possibly have is a new boss looking over his shoulder all the time to to make sure he gets the the nod for for any decision he makes. Tom, I know that you are a massive uh, tech watcher. What did you think of the appointment? (laughs) Not sure about that, Danny. But yeah, I mean, there were a couple of other observations. You covered a a lot of it there. But I think one thing that was interesting is that um, Dorsey isn't um, keeping a seat on the board. So, you know, with regards to that idea of him kind of looking over the shoulder of his replacement, I suppose, you know, he is making quite a clean break, particularly compared to perhaps, you know, other founders of tech companies that perhaps haven't haven't done the same thing in the past. Um, and the other sort of slightly kind of uh, blue sky kind of observation that I had seen in, in some quarters was that Twitter might now be a bid target. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not sure who the candidates would be as, as kind of for, for bidders, but that that was another sort of um, observation that I had or, or certainly that I'd see. I think you see this when when you have a change in leadership for a company. Uh, it's, it's seen as an opportunity, isn't it, for someone else to come in, either shake things up or, um, you know, for an external party to think, okay, this is perfect time to pounce on it. You know, we can push those changes. There isn't someone at the top is going to sort of push back potentially, you know. Um, and I think that Twitter has been seen as incredibly powerful tool and it just, it, it, it could be commercialized a lot uh, more effective, but equally, like Danny would say, it's, it's, uh, it's also how do you police um, the things that people are saying on there? So it's, um, if we do see someone step in, it, it could be a media company. It could be, um, you know, whether it's private equity or something. It's um, it's not going to be an easy one to to turn into something um, much more powerful than it is because. If it was simply a case of um, charging users a subscription fee and um, increasing the amount of advertising, I think that would have uh, already been done. There's a, there's a lot more sort of sophistication and um, responsibility that's needed in terms of overseeing that business. Well, certainly, if there is uh, somebody interested from the tech sector already, perhaps a social media giant already, then they're certainly going to have to think long and hard about any competition issues because we've seen some big moves this week from the UK's competition watchdog. Um, And it's certainly something that's going to demand that tech companies really sit up and pay attention. There's been this long-going saga where um, Facebook's parent company, now called Meta, um, had taken over Giphy, uh, which is, you know, those little um, GIFs that you put on your tweets or you put on your uh, messages to people and they jump around and say things and and, uh, sort of add value to it. Well, both Giphy and Facebook are based in the U.S., But the fact that so many UK residents use both social media sites prompted the Competitions and Markets Authority to take a really good long look. And they've been looking at this for a long time. And they've said that they can see no other way to protect the interest of the consumer 
than saying that this deal can't go ahead, that Facebook have to sell off Giphy to have somebody else get involved. And one of the really interesting lines in the report that I read is that uh, it's about potential. It's not that Giphy is a direct competitor to Facebook, that the potential is that it could one day be such. And the fact that this merger has happened, well, whether or not it now goes ahead or not, potentially impacts Giphy's ability to take on Facebook. Um, Meta obviously put out a number of statements and it will undoubtedly consider a challenge to this ruling. You know, I mean, it's got a lot of skin in the game here. Um, but the one thing that it also pointed out is that this could have a big impact on small companies because a lot of tech startups, if they're trying to scale up, the way that they do it is by being snapped up by a competitor. It's sometimes the only smart way for a business to grow. Now, I think most tech companies understand that over the next decade, they're going to be subjected to greater scrutiny, particularly, you know, those ones that have mushroomed into these great big companies with power and influence. But, you know, I think the huge amount of, uh, of words are going to be spoken about this decision by the CMA. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not it is overturned by a court going forward. Um, but, you know, potentially this could cost Meta a lot of money. Well, it's not just UK regulators that are flexing muscles at the moment. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about rising prices, about supply chain issues. Well, the Federal Trade Commission has now stepped in. What they have asked is that retailers and consumer good groups in the United States hand over information, some of it proprietary information, uh, about the business. They want to see why the bottlenecks have occurred and whether or not any moves that have been made by some of these companies have actually made the situation worse. So the FTC sent out letters to Walmart, Amazon, Kroger, CS Wholesale Grocers, uh, uh, among others, to get hold of this information, that they want to see whether or not the supply chain issues have added to rising consumer prices or whether they've encouraged companies to maybe engage in anti-competitive practices. Now, we know that in the first few weeks of the pandemic, a lot of manufacturers reduced their output of products. Um, we had national lockdowns, labor shortages. You know, sometimes workers didn't want to go in or, or they were concerned and some businesses had to put in measures to try and make sure that everything was safe and secure. But they're now looking to see whether or not that is going to be something that will carry on because, you know, clearly consumers are concerned about rising prices and the impact on the cost of living. So, yeah, we'll be interested very much to see uh, where that investigation goes to. Yeah. So let's turn to income now. So, I, you know, the talk of uh, interest rates going up, I wonder whether people are thinking, well, I perhaps don't need to take the risk of putting my money into the stock market. Am I going to get to the point where cash is going to deliver a you know, fairly decent return? So, um, you know, there is definitely this shift in thinking for anyone who is currently um, generating an income from their investments. 
yeah, to talk about this and to find out about the latest on dividends from the stock market. Dan has been talking to James Harries, who manages the Troy Global Income Fund. So let's start with a question that many investors want to know. Where in the world can you find the most generous dividends? Well, it's an interesting question, actually. I mean, we live in a world where income is pretty hard to come by. No, you can't find it in bonds. You can't find it in credit. But there is some income in equities. Um, our contention would be, though, that you need to be a bit careful about that, obviously, because if you're having more of your money invested in equities than perhaps you would have done traditionally, you should do it in a way that's risk adjusted. You should try and be, be mindful of the downside and be a bit careful. But I mean, to directly answer your question, it's quite interesting when you look at it. The biggest yields are in areas like Brazil, Pakistan, Russia, Malaysia. And then we go down a little bit and you have the, uh, you could describe them as Anglo-sized countries, Australia and the United Kingdom, which slightly stand out uh, as being developed markets, but with reasonably high dividend yields. And then the opposite end of the spectrum, you have countries which yield virtually nothing, such as Israel, India, Hungary, Denmark. And then interestingly enough, the USA. We have quite a big allocation to the USA and we can, we can talk about why that's the case. So ironically enough, our contention would be that you don't necessarily want to go to where the highest yields are to invest for income. I know that sounds counterintuitive, um, but that would be our view. Okay, so I mean, why is it that um, something like the US, which I know some people do look at for income, like you say, you look at it yourself, but the yields are definitely less generous there, aren't they, compared to places like the US, uh, sorry, compared to the UK and Asia? Well, they may be less generous, but I suspect they're more sustainable. Um, now, the reason we invest in, I mean, first of all, we don't really invest by country uh, at Troy. We try and limit ourselves to a particular group of businesses and sectors. And our portfolios largely reside in areas like uh, consumer staples, healthcare, uh, enterprise technology, and so on. And we can find plenty of, of income-bearing, high-quality franchises globally uh, that generate the yields, sustainable growing yields that we require. But the fact of the matter is the yield is somewhat lower in the U.S. And it's, it's for a combination of factors. The first is that the U.S. is relatively expensive at the, at the headline level relative to other countries around the world. We, we would argue that it, it commands that premium. We find it to have the best businesses uh, and it's the best economy. Uh, it's partly cultural. There's a, there's, a, there's a history and a culture of share buybacks as well as paying dividends in the U.S. Um, in the past, that was partly funded by tax. Um, but, but that is the case. And it's partly because there's lots of innovative growing countries, uh, companies in, in the US, which uh, pay no dividend, some of them very large, as we know. Uh, and that in aggregate brings the overall yield down. But it doesn't mean there's still not lots of great businesses we can invest in, in the US and of course elsewhere uh, to generate income. Yeah. So the prospect of rising interest rates means that cash savings rates could soon start to go up. Now, but do you think that we're still years away from seeing savings rates reach the kind of levels that make them more attractive than equities in terms of income? I mean, it's a really interesting question. Our, our, our contention is this. We don't know if inflation is going to be persistent or not. I don't believe anybody does. But I think we can have much more conviction that interest rates are unlikely to go up very much. Now, I know you've suggested they might, but my view is, our view is there's just simply too much debt. If they put up interest rates, short rates too much, um, then they'll create a very serious problem for so that leads to two potential scenarios. Either uh, inflation dissipates, uh, and in that occasion, interest rates probably don't go up very much, uh, and a portfolio like ours, robust, um, high-quality, predictable businesses will do pretty well. Uh, and also, because they've taken price at a time of elevated uh, input costs, if those input costs ameliorate or moderate, uh, then uh, margins will expand and they'll do very well. Uh, 
The second scenario is that inflation continues to be more persistent, but rates stay very low because of the levels of debt. And in that sort of scenario, you get very negative real interest rates, which is an environment where index-linked bonds do very well, but also, dare I say it, a portfolio of businesses that have demonstrated pricing power because of the competitive advantages that they enjoy, which is why they also have high returns on capital. And that is very descriptive of our portfolio. And if you look at it in those terms, it looks excellent value. So I guess I would slightly reject the premise of the question. I don't think rates can go up very much. Okay. So I mean, where are you actually sort of finding the best dividend opportunities sort of that match your investment style at the moment then? Indeed. So at Troy, we have pretty concentrated, pretty low turnover portfolios. So we have about 10% turnover per annum and we have about uh, our portfolio has about 35 companies 34 companies in it um so we have more than 10 year holding periods so where we find ideas tends to be pretty persistent uh, and pretty consistent uh, and they reside as i mentioned in areas such as healthcare uh, which remains an attractive area for generating income uh consumer staples uh, uh we find them to continue to be very predictable high quality durable businesses and they generate some decent yield uh, and for us, particularly enterprise software, as opposed to you might consider consumer software. So we have businesses like uh, Microsoft and Accenture, which are both building out the cloud and helping people migrate to the cloud. Neither of those yield terribly much, but they persistently grow their yield. But other companies like Paychex and ADP in the United States, uh, which are outsourced HR uh, companies, um, which um, which software businesses, basically, which we think have decent and growing and persistently growing dividend yields. We also find some ideas in, in very idiosyncratic um, financial companies like Chicago Mercantile Exchange is one particular business we favor very much. It's benefiting from uh, changing inflation expectations, leading people to hedge more with futures and options. And of course, the explosion in debt uh, feeds into that interest rate futures and options business as well. Okay, so you've got PepsiCo, haven't you, in your portfolio. Um, I wonder if some investors might be surprised that you've got that, given that the stock only yields 2.6%. So I was just wondering, is that an example of a company where actually the attraction lies in the dividend growth rather than sort of the, the headline yield? Well, we'd argue it was both. I mean, 2.6% doesn't sound like very much. And a few years ago, when interest rates were 5%, uh, that would have been seen as pretty low. But we're not in that world anymore. We're in a world of zero interest rates. And I would argue pretty elevated valuations across all capital markets, which is leading to a positive income. And also, I would say, the danger of material, if not permanent capital loss for investors. So in that sort of scenario, we think it's very important, I, mean, I would say this, but to follow a Troy approach of being quality focused, of trying to invest in predictable and durable businesses, being absolute return in our, uh, in our mindset rather than relative return, uh, and being focused on the downside. Now, I would argue Pepsi encapsulates those sorts of ideas. Pepsi is a wonderful business. Um, I know it probably people associate it mostly with its um, drink, the drink that's competitor to Coca-Cola. But actually, Pepsi is really a snacking business. More than half its revenues and over 65% of its, uh, of its profits come from snacks, um, from, from Frito-Lay and Doritos and other such delights. Now, this is a brilliant business. It's 10 times the size of its nearest competitor in the US. It's got uh, international opportunities for expansion, high returns on capital, extremely entrenched positions in terms of brands and distribution, um, and is, is therefore just a lovely business. Um, trades on about a three and a bit percent cash yield, funding a two percent, six percent dividend yield, which we expect to grow persistently. So we would argue on the basis that we're trying to drive the optimum balance of quality income and growth at all times, that Pepsi remains a very credible, very high quality 
long-term global equity income opportunity. Yeah. And so just just finally, there's a sort of a feeling that returns from equities will be a lot lower in the coming years than we've seen recently. Do you think that dividends are going to represent sort of a much bigger part of this overall return going forward? Well, that would be logical. I mean, it is perfectly fair to say, and I kind of mentioned it, that uh, broad valuations today imply low returns, high valuations imply low returns. And that's not just in equities, but that's across all asset classes. Uh, And that's an environment in which you have to be relatively careful. We are also facing a world economy where technological disruption is broadening and deepening. And therefore, um, you need to be cognizant of that, particularly as an income investor, because a lot of the areas which traditionally paid an income are now being disrupted. And so they need to be avoided. So once again, we think that you need to be very focused on businesses that you think have sustainable competitive advantages are not subject to technological disruption, but are still able to pay and grow dividends. And we find those to be in businesses which have relatively light capital requirements. So therefore, they're able to invest sufficiently to entrench their competitive advantages, but also to pay their dividends. It's also the case that, of course, as you sort of mentioned, that the relative attractions or the proportional uh, amount of a return that comes from a dividend in times of plenty tends to be rather forgotten. But in in more difficult times, uh, which tend to follow periods where expected returns are low, then that incremental return you get from from a dividend is both additive to the return, but it's also very welcome because people become a bit less focused on what their portfolio is worth and a bit more focused on meeting their day-to-day outgoings when times are a bit tougher. So yes, we would say the dividend, in terms of the return that the dividend will represent from the total return from the market will be greater, but its, uh, its importance uh, and its attraction, if you like, will also increase if overall returns are somewhat lower in the future than they have been in the recent past. Well, James Harris from the Troy Global Income Fund, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much indeed, Dan. James Harris there from the Troy Global Income Fund. Um, Dan, one thing that I've really noticed over the last few months has been the rise in the use of credit. Yeah, I mean, in particular, buy now, pay later. This is becoming huge. And more than 17 million UK customers have used buy now, pay later company to make an online purchase. Um, so I don't know if, you, if if you've never done it, you can. Uh, it's a way of either postponing uh, the bill for a short time or splitting it into sort of manageable chunks, and it's interest free. And so this convenience is actually encouraging people to spend more money. And um, one of the big players in this area is Klarna, and they're suggesting that the average order size has increased by forty percent with retailers because of buy now pay later, um, because the more it becomes popular, the greater the cry for tougher regulations. I think there's lots of people worrying that users are falling into debt too easily. Someone like Klarna will have no interest or no fees if payments are on time. And it claims that around 40% of users repay money earlier. But interestingly, it's also now got a pay now option. And that's part of a defensive move ahead of this expected crackdown on the sector. So it's going to do more checks on to make sure users can afford to borrow and use clearer language uh, to ensure customers understand that they're actually taking on debt. And I think this is really important because the Citizens and Vice Charity says it's found that shoppers don't actually view buy now, pay later services as proper borrowing. Uh, Many didn't actually understand fully what they were signing up for. 
And that um, Citizen Vice found that four in 10 who'd used this form of credit in the previous 12 months are actually struggling to repay. So we've got that sort of split down the middle of people um, using it and happy to to pay back that money really quickly and others who are struggling. And, you know, credit card borrowing in October actually jumped quite a lot. And I, and I wonder if this is linked to inflation issues. We know that the cost of shopping is going up, our petrol costs are going up. And so, you know, the Bank of England is saying that um, there was six hundred and thirty-seven million pounds of new credit card borrowing in October. So I think that if you if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet, perhaps you want to sit down, take a good hard look at your finances, work out what you can actually afford. Because there's nothing worse than starting a new calendar year under financial pressure. And um the idea that more people are turning to credit uh, means you really do have to be very careful in sort of managing your own personal finances you need to remember the pay later bit right i mean you know it's all very well by now but yeah you can't forget about that side of it i think one of the things which has sort of impacted the amount of credit that people have been using in october as well though is the fact that a lot of retailers were saying hey buy early for christmas otherwise you might not have what you want and if you would usually use your november december paycheck to fund those purchases and you're being told hang on buy in October to make sure you can get it, maybe people have gone to credit as a way to do that. And hopefully what we'll see is that they then use the money from the November and the December paycheck to pay off that credit as quick as possible. I hope so. I mean, we've certainly heard that there's there are a lot of people sitting on a lot of cash still from money that they saved up during lockdown. Um, and I know, you know, we've seen figures that show that people are um, paying down debt um faster than perhaps we might have seen before but i guess it's the flip side is it's the ones who haven't got that sort of cash cushion um really got to be careful about not getting into sort of lots of um sort of personal debt if if you can really help it we've just got time for another rather bonkers money story from jenny owen and this involves cryptocurrency and a hamster yeah, I think this might be the best story to be told so far in the money madness section, and it's going to take an awful lot to top it. Recently, a cryptocurrency trading hamster who became an internet sensation, he sadly passed away. Mr. Gox, yes, that was his full name, was able to outperform human investors using a special trading cage and gained over 18,000 followers on social media. This trading icon's career was born from two German friends who wanted to prove the randomness of success in the cryptocurrency sector. And Mr. Gox began his empire on the 12th of June, 2021. His trading cage was attached to his normal cage and was set up with a hamster wheel to determine which cryptocurrency to trade and two tunnels, one for buy and one for sell. Once he'd run on the wheel and then through one of the tunnels, his owners would then place deals in the chosen cryptocurrency. The cage was also decked out with a little desk and a mini laptop. Uh, it was pretty plush compared to what my hamsters had when I was a kid. After his final day of trading on the 22nd of November, his portfolio was up 19.7% uh, and he'd made around 98 euros profit. A crypto news uh, website suggested that the hamster's latest financial results beat investing behemoth Warren Buffett's portfolio, Berkshire Hathaway. My favourite quote to come from this tragic loss is that Mr. Gox's owners haven't decided whether to get a successor to the hamster's portfolio. So maybe we should go through inheritance tax for rodents in a future podcast. 
Very good. I don't, I don't think you will, we, you will ever top that, Jen. I don't think the uh, Money Markets listeners will ever recover from this story, really. I'm sure there must be more pet investment stories out there. There must be. Challenge accepted, Danny. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, Jen. Next week, Danny and Laura will be in the hot seat and they'll be joined by Tom Selby for our last Pensions Corner of the Year. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.